the hubris of leadership is to believe somehow that you know what a good and a bad idea is. You have an opinion. You might be right more than everyone else, but you just don't know. And so the only question that really matters is, what will it cost us to find out? And if the cost is too great to bear, then of course you should say no. And you should figure out a way to make the cost less. But just saying no to everything is not a great strategy, as the uh, taxi commission can tell you. This is your time. How can we earn twice as much in half the time with joy and ease while serving the highest good? That is our guiding question here at the Free Time Cafe, your home for heart-based business. I'm your host, Jenny Blake. Join me for conversations with authors, friends, and fellow business owners as we explore ways to free your mind, time, and team to do your best work. Now, on to today's show. Hello, hello, my friends. I am so excited to have Aaron Dignan here on the show today. Aaron is one of my friend tours from afar, as in he has no idea that I've been listening to his podcast, reading his books, and generally following the trajectory of his career for quite a long time now, maybe even 10 years. But it wasn't until a mutual friend put us in touch, a former Zoogler, my friend Sarah Devereaux. She and I used to work together, and she was one of the most just oh craziest, smartest people, best organized, like such a powerhouse at Google. And long after I left, and Sarah's now working with Aaron on their brand new startup, Murmur a collaborative decision-making tool that gives everybody a voice in how to make work better, no meetings required. So I can't wait to get into the software and the principles behind it. Aaron does so many things, but among them, he's the author of a book called Brave New Work, co-host of the Brave New Work podcast, which is fantastic, founder of The Ready, and of course, this new company, Murmur, and also the co-founder of Responsive.org. So you can see there's so many interesting points of entry here. I can't wait to see where the conversation takes us. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I am excited to talk about Murmur. And specifically when you filled out the form saying, like, what's on your mind these days, you put Web3 and DAOs. And I have not yet done a direct convo for free time on DAOs, but I feel like you're the perfect person to introduce <laughs> this idea of decentralized autonomous organizations and organizing because, as I asked you offline, you said neither of your companies has a CEO. Tell us, like, what is a DAO? And also, you've been DAOing now for a decade <laughs> plus. So I'd love to hear your take on how you structure these businesses. I know it's a huge question, but let's just dive in somewhere and I'll follow up. Sure, yeah. So I think for the better part of the last decade, we've been organized in more of a self-management, self-organization, cooperative kind of way, but without the benefit of any real technology underlying that. So mostly in the form of writing the right legal agreements and the right social agreements with our colleagues to basically say, we're all adults here. We could actually just be and treat each other like adults. We don't have to you know, oversee and scrutinize and micromanage what each other does. And so we can create an operating system or a way of working that is based on consent, based on the idea of what is safe to try and what have we chosen to constrain or restrict rather than permission, which is like, hey, you can't do anything until Aaron says you can. That's been our game for a long time. and We've been learning and playing and failing and succeeding at that. But more recently, with the advent of the blockchain and the excitement and frankly, like just huge community movement around DAOs, we started to look again at what are the underlying principles there. 
And it basically seems like there are a few things that really mirror what we're seeing in the cooperative or self-management space. These DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, are groups of people. Some people jokingly refer to them as like a group chat with a shared wallet. They're groups of people who may or may not know each other's identities, but who have a digital identity, who come together around a specific mission or purpose or idea and do work with and for each other to bring that thing to life. And that could be an art project. It could be coming together to buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution. It could be coming together to, you know, take ownership of a golf club and turn it into a member's program. You know, there's as many ideas as there are for businesses, there are for DAOs. But the underlying principles behind the DAO are that there isn't really a traditional hierarchy or centralized leadership or centralized control over the entity, or at least they don't want there to be after they finish distributing the ownership and the voice in governance and in the work that's going on. And the way they do that is through essentially agreements, through proposals that they push through and that they record on the blockchain. And we can talk about what the blockchain is. And then they give people either tokens or other forms of rights in governing and making decisions about the future of that community and its monies, if it has any and go out into the world. And what's weird about it is they don't have, at least up until recently, they didn't have like a corporate charter or a registration with any state or government. So it really was kind of this company without a home or without any sort of formal oversight. Now we're seeing states coming around to creating DAO versions of LLCs and other things like that. So it's becoming a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more governed by the nation state. But up until recently, it was, yeah, just kind of a free-for-all, a group chat with a wallet. <laughs> I have friends who are DAO curious, let's say, from a leadership perspective of do they want to start a DAO or transition some project that they're working on to this self-managing. And with the DAO, what's so interesting is ownership is completely shared, right? So this is probably an old mindset question. But one question that I've heard people ask is, well, then can I be booted out of my own company? <laughs> like, let's say somebody <laughs> starts a DAO. Are they immediately upon organizing in this manner? Whether it's official DAO based on blockchain or a business like yours that's self-organizing, does that immediately come with that built-in sort of tension that, yes, you could be excused from your own company? <laughs> it depends how you set it up. So in 999 cases out of 1,000, in the early days, that is not true, because while everybody has a stake, not everybody's stake is the same size. And so just like a startup where you might have a founder with 50% of the equity, many of the Web3, crypto, and DAO projects have a small handful of core contributors who have control, so to speak, over the future of the project. Now, the espoused goal or principles of a DAO is that they want that ownership and that structure to be decentralized as much as possible over time. So they don't want to retain control forever. And so there would be a point in the future where, yeah, maybe you could be asked to leave. And in fact, a couple of very prominent figures in the DAO space have been in the center of a question of people actually proposing that they be removed in the last few months. And it's been wild to watch. It is a battle between the masses, the community that has small amounts of voting rights and the few whales or large voting right folks that might feel differently. So spiritually, yes, over time, you want to have it be so decentralized that you could be asked to step away. Practically, no. For the first several years, that's very unlikely to be 
possible or to happen. It's almost like a mutiny. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> and in some ways, I've always thought about that with the businesses I start. If I have a stake in the business, and if I have a voice in choosing who joins the team, then yeah, if someday some moment occurs and people are like, we really don't think you should be here anymore. Maybe that is the best decision for me as an investor, right? Is to step away as an owner and say, well, the people don't want me here. That I'm probably not adding value and I might be better off on the sidelines. So I do think just because you're asked to leave doesn't mean that you don't have your ownership. It just means that, yeah, the community would rather not see you. Right. And it seems sometimes founders agree and they know, okay, we need to bring the adults into the room like Google did mm -hmm. with Eric Schmidt. And then there are other cases where it's more of a gray area, like how many people have called for Zuckerberg to step down and <laughs> he will not. And then also you and I have probably watched in the startup space where founders are essentially ousted by their yeah, board. Sure. Unwilling. And I, in particular, I watched Ty Haney of Outdoor Voices. Mm -hmm. This company she started that was so close to her heart. And I remember it. Of course, you and I were not in there behind the scenes in the board meetings looking at the P&Ls. But I just think that must be devastating. And then also it's a question of whose interests prevail. Is it yeah. investors? Is it about growth at all costs? Or is it about heart and community? And it's not always clear either what the right thing, not that there is any one right thing, but it's not always clear, I think, when there are so many different interests at play. Well, and that's what's so unique, I think, and interesting about DAOs is if you look at Web1, Web1 was basically about let's get the information on the internet and the companies own the information and they produce the information. So if you're Yahoo, you're like building it and writing it and sharing it. And then Web2 was like, wait a second, the companies will own the platforms, but the people will create the content. So then it was YouTube and it was Twitter and it was Facebook. And essentially, to some degree, we're all being taken advantage of by these platforms. At Web3, the DAO movement is about we own the platform and the information. We create it and we own it. And in that way, it's interesting because investors, employees, customers, users, partners, they all have a stake and they all have a voice and they all have a vote and they're all often commingled in the same discord in the same channels. There is no boardroom. And so you have a little bit more of a collectivist kind of operating principle at work. And it does seem vastly more designed for some kind of fairness or some kind of voices being heard. We're still seeing some perversions of that. But I think like done well and done correctly with principles, it brings everyone to the table with equal footing, maybe not equal weight in terms of what they own, but an equal opportunity to see and participate. And that is a good thing. Yes. When you said the collective has a bigger seat at the table, I think that's true. What comes to my mind is that the collective can be bullies sometimes as well, <laughs> you know, and I want to be sensitive in my use of that word, but no, totally. there's a certain collective fever sometimes that takes <laughs> over. And the mob, they the call mob. that the mob. Mob rule, exactly. And I'm thinking about Basecamp, this company that probably you and I have followed many years as well. And sure. both, I respect those guys so much and what they've built and how they've built it. And when they said, okay, we no longer want to allow like, politics at work or on our Slack channels and it's distracting, people are finding it hard to work or they don't know what to say and when and when to not speak up. And um, wow, this created such a firestorm in the media. They offered severance, a bunch of their employees took it. And yet I bet now, almost probably over a year later, 
I doubt the two founders regret it. I bet they feel that like this is what they needed to do. But if they were only listening to the collective in the moment, their feet were really held to the fire on that one. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing about ownership is, is it their company or is it our company? And so if it's their company, then what happened is exactly what should happen. They decide what they want to do and they do it. If it's our company as a community, and that's the ideology behind a DAO, then who gives a shit what they think? Like they have their votes, you know? So I think that we have to decide from the outset when we create something, is this a community garden? Is this a Whole Foods? Is this my living room? Those are very different contexts and very different ideologies about how we'll decide when things get hard. Yes, and what you do when Whole Foods gets acquired by Amazon. <laughs> totally, which is very devastating, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know. Within a week, the paper quality of the bags was cut in <laughs> wah, half. Wah. It's like, oh, boy, yeah, here, <laughs> here we, we go. go. Here we go. So, okay, you have the stomach for running two companies now, The Ready and Murmur. And when I asked you, I said, oh, have you stepped out of your CEO role? And you said, neither company has a CEO. There are stewards of different circles. I think a lot of business owners, especially once they've built the company in the early days with their sweat equity, this would be just terrifying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> to imagine a fully self-managing org. And I don't know, just the zero to oneness of like, of getting there and not having it descend into chaos. And I've heard different varying degrees of success, even from people within, say, Zappos before they were acquired and it was a pure holacracy. Sure. Some people loved it. Others didn't. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us what you think the biggest challenge is of having only stewards of different circles and what you think a big benefit would be. Yeah. Well, we joke a lot on our podcast on Brave New Work that all org design is trade-offs. Like you don't get anything without giving something up. And so whenever you make these trades, you're going to have benefits and you're going to have costs. The thing with stewards and with not having CEOs is that I spent the better part of a decade being a CEO, being a linchpin, being, you know, very egoic and very focused on like how important I was and how needed I was and all that kind of stuff. And I get that. Like that's a real kind of part of the hedonic treadmill is your identity as leader, founder, mercurial, put me on the cover of a magazine. I did this kind of thinking. It just burned me out. Like I just got really, really tired and exhausted of always having to be the one who was thinking about the thing and figuring out the right way and critiquing and providing feedback to everyone else and setting everyone's pay. And eventually it was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. There's got to be a better way to do this. And the metaphor that I use in the book is the difference between a traffic light, kind of a four-way signal and a roundabout. And with a traffic light, you could say, oh yeah, the person in charge of the traffic light, like they have power, they have control. They hit the button and the light turns red and everybody has to stop. And that must feel amazing to have that kind of power. But the person who designed the roundabout actually has more control, in my opinion, more power. And the reason is that the goal of it is not to get people to do what you want. The goal of it is to achieve some purpose or outcome or success. And so if the goal of my business as an intersection is fewer accidents and more cars through per hour the roundabout does better on those things than the traffic light and the designer of the roundabout can sleep in or just not go to work. And that to me was like this huge insight, this huge moment of relief where it was like, wait a second, if I set the table correctly, if I set the chessboard up correctly, 
I don't have to be the linchpin and I can have a new identity and a new place for my ego to go, which is I'm an org designer. I'm a table setter. I'm not a taskmaster. And that was a real relief for me. Now, what you get, as you asked in that situation, is a lot more collective ownership, a lot more resilience. Often you get growth and success that you can't really figure out why it happened. So the first year that we really implemented these ideas at the business before the business before the business I'm in right now, we had a 30 or 40% growth rate for that year and nobody could explain it to me. I was just like, why, how did this happen? What was the initiative or the person or the reason? There wasn't one. It was just that the whole system got a little bit more effective in every, you know, inch of air between people. And that was a natural emergent case. Now, the downside is sometimes you miss that kind of hard charging focused ownership that you see when people are put in charge of something. And they have that idea of like, I'm in charge, I'm going to make this happen. And they just drive, 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 drive. You don't see as much of that in a self-managing system. It's a little bit more emergent. It's a little bit more loose. There's a little bit more dance to it. And so when you need that or you crave that, you have to talk about it and you have to kind of nurture it out of the system or find the right people to join a project to make it happen naturally. But yeah, when you can't tell everybody what you want and when you want it, you have to find other ways to motivate that level of intensity. Can't believe I bring this up on the podcast, but it reminds me of friends living in New York, the Bay Area, friends in non-monogamous relationships versus mm -hmm. monogamous, where monogamous is very clear and straightforward. Yep. Nothing intimate happens outside. With non-monogamy, they always say it's all about communication. You're going to exactly. be communicating a whole lot more, setting agreements, setting frameworks, that it's a more intense communication exercise at that yes. point. Yes. Everybody always hears me yak about this and says, ooh, structurelessness and chaos doesn't sound like my cup of tea. And I say, come watch us for a week. I guarantee we have more structure and rigor than any company you've ever visited. It's just not the kind you're used to. I also appreciate you connecting it to burnout because I think so many people listening, myself included, can relate. It's exhausting to be the bottleneck <laughs> and the only decision yeah. maker. Yeah. And I mean, I talk in, in free time and it's something I still struggle with. So this is why I need you in this conversation. But struggling with everybody coming to me with questions, even at no matter how many times I try to bounce them back and call it question ping pong uh -huh. or the old school William Onkin HBR article about everybody leaving their monkeys on the manager's desk, monkey being problem or project next action. And There's a reason they're called the labors of Hercules. <laughs> yeah, say more. It's hard work. Yes. Being the hero is not easy and it doesn't last. I also smiled when I saw the metaphor of roundabouts in the book because you'll be happy to know my mom, she's the campus landscape architect at Stanford. And one of her big projects that she gets asked to talk about all over the country now is putting in roundabouts. <laughs> so what's fun is like, yeah, she's been there over 20 years. And so she watched certain intersections were very problematic. Mm -hmm. And there were accidents, a lot of bikers, nobody knew what to do. Cars would drive too fast. And once they put in these roundabouts, the flow, just like you're describing, the flow is so much smoother and people know what to do. They have to slow down. They've even built some of the roundabouts at Stanford to wind in a very particular way that the physics mm. of it mean that the car has to slow down and do something different. And yet the car itself still flows through. 
There's no bottleneck. There's none of this stop and start friction that you would have at a traffic light. And like you said, all those other things are true too. They're safer. Everybody's happier. Everybody loves them. So now they've put in like, I don't know how many by now at the campus. And they're, like I said, they're getting asked to speak all over the country. That's about this solution. Yeah. And it was right there in the opening to your book. So I sent her a photo of it. (laughs) Nobody looks at a video of a murmuration or a school of fish and goes, that looks lame. They think like that's coordination, right? And what is funny is when we start driving that way, we're in the same pattern. Ooh, so is that where the name Murmur came from? Indeed it is. Oh, I thought it was just the beautiful harmony of all the M's and the curves and the... (laughs) (laughs) Murmur, it's almost one of those, what do you call it, when the word is the same in all directions? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm forgetting the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is that a founder? It's not. Upside down. Yeah, yeah. It's more like cellar door. It's one of those things that just feels good to say. Right. So, okay, one of the things you've talked about, because Aaron and his co-host for his podcast did a fantastic series on DAOs. And I thought one particular piece jumped out to me as interesting, that a lot of what we're seeing now in this emergent Web3 are reputationally driven systems. And I guess you could say Web2 as well with the advent of the influencer. What's the difference between collaboration versus the celebrity and fame aspect that you see in these systems? Well, I think there are different kinds of power, right? And there is the power of position, there's reputational power, there's influence power, there's identity power, power of privilege, all those sorts of things. And so when you get a group of human beings together, you're going to be dealing with all of those, no matter what org principles you choose to work around. I find that generally speaking, you want to focus on reputational power as much as you can, because it's a moving, living, breathing target. And specifically, the kind of reputational power that's based on having actual experience working with someone. So it's one thing to say like, oh, you know, reputationally, I think this celebrity CEO sounds really cool. And I think they're, I'm, they're famous. To me, that's not reputation, that's fame. Reputation is when somebody says, you know, is Tom Hanks a good guy on set? And most people would be like, well, yeah, he's one of the few, right? And so that's reputation. And that sort of power can be managed and it can be used as a basis for decision making within the organization about who you'll collaborate with and when and for how much and the kind of flow of the whole system. So as much as possible, we've built our systems around that model where people have a lot of agency about who they work with and when and what they work on and how, and that they have as much reputational information as they can get to make those decisions. Do you feel that this is predicated on finding the right type of self-starting people to work in the organization? Like, does it start there? Well, I think when you start something, anything, you're essentially creating space is how I refer to it. And so you're kind of drawing a circle and lighting a candle in the center of it and being like, this is a thing. This is a space that is interesting. And it might be a problem that you're obsessed with. It might be a user or a customer that you're obsessed with. It might be a technology, it might be a place, but you've essentially created some attention and some focus on something. And then people choose to step in or out of that circle. And so when you're creating space and protecting space as a founder or what some of the people in my category like to refer to as source, like source energy for something new, whatever you put out is going to determine who comes in. So I do believe that you want certain types of people at the beginning 
but I don't believe that it's the same for every project. So I think it's more about what do you need to go from that empty space to something that starts to move and shake. And it might be that you need a certain type of attitude. You need a certain set of skills or a certain set of principles or values. Maybe it's all the above. I often think really hard when I first start about like, what kinds of energy do we need in this new space for this to work? And with something like Murmur, for example, it was a very interesting dance between someone that knows a lot about org design and decision-making and collaborative and participatory decision-making. And that's a very small list. But then when it really boiled down to it, actually what I was looking for was just people that were sick of the status quo, that it had enough experience with the other thing that they really were disillusioned with it and were excited about learning about this new opportunity, this new way of thinking about that stuff. And so we kind of put down the very high bar for knowledge of theory and put up a different high bar for like, how excited are you about fixing that problem? I love that. And just because also sometimes people with the most knowledge are the most entrenched in how things should be oh, totally. and should go. Tell me about it. I love what you said, too, of asking what kind of energy when thinking about hiring, what kind of energy does the space need? You also talk about stewardship. So what does it mean to be the person holding the space, let's say, for the circle? Mm -hmm. And designing and upholding the OS. And I know you talk a lot about work OS and the operating system of the company. So what does it look like as, I, I hesitate to even say as a leader, but yeah. what does it look like in a self-managing organization to hold the space, uphold the OS, but of course, everyone's responsible for the OS at the same time? Like, is one person maybe the steward of that more so than the others? Yeah, totally. I mean, think about it this way. When we start a company, it's just just us. It's just one of us or a handful of us. And then as the work expands, we need more help. So we start to blow that up into more narrow roles or more specific roles or responsibilities that we want to articulate. And then eventually one of those gets too big and it needs its own space. And you have a different team, circle, pod, squad, whatever you want to call it. So often for us, when we find that there's need for that new space, there might be just one person who is going to steward that experiment and that expansion. And their job, when we talk about stewarding the OS, is basically what roles need to be present to begin the work, what agreements need to be in place to do the work in a way that's, you know, in alignment with our principles, in alignment with the rest of our agreements as a system. And it's their job to stand that structure up. So they're kind of putting up the studs, essentially, that will form the house. The good news is the studs are not permanent. They're more like, you know, Lincoln logs. So there's room for adjustment later, but someone has to build the tent and then invite a few others in and then expand the tent and so on. And so that is that role of stewardship is basically saying, I'm going to make sure that the purpose of this new team, squad, pod, circle, whatever, is going to get pursued. And it's going to get pursued with some energy and some structure of that, you know, of what is needed to pursue it. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of governance in the early days, even if it's informally, just to figure out who do we need on the bus and where are we headed and what other agreements need to be in place. I think they should be called team pod squads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> team circle pod squads. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. We'll be right back just after this. Well, those agreements are the raison d'etre of Murmur, which is why the company exists. So 
tell us a little bit about Murmur, why you're building it, and also what I love in the overview video of it, you talk about your mantra of prioritize progress over perfection. Mm -hmm. So what that has to do with creating these working agreements. Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, the story behind Murmur is basically this. And this is funny to talk about in the midst of the great resignation. People quit when they don't believe things will change. That's the bottom line. That's the reason everybody quits, right? It's when they don't believe that things will change to meet whatever need they have, right? They have some strategic, tactical, human, emotional, cognitive need that is not being met. And they don't believe anymore that it will get better. What we fundamentally believe and what we ask every user to believe is that everyone should have a voice in how they work together. Everyone should have a say in how they work together. Doesn't mean everyone's say is exactly the same or that it cuts across all contexts, but everyone should have a real say in how they do their work. And so Murmur is a platform for making agreements and decisions at work about all the things that we argue about at work. So that could be policies, that could be processes, that could be roles, that could be teams and their charters. It could be information flows or metrics or meetings or how we do remote work or tools that we use or strategies or how we give feedback, you know, what it means to be a good citizen, all that stuff. These are all agreements, whether they're implicit or explicit, that shape the world of work for us. And so what Murmur does is give the team or the community a platform where anyone can make a proposal for a new agreement or a new experiment invite the people that have a right to inform that decision that are part of that team or circle or that are elected representatives or whatever your power structure is, and that each of those people has to consent through a structured asynchronous process to the outcome. So you make that proposal, they get to ask questions, and then you give answers, they get to make suggestions, and then you make edits, and then everyone gets to say, you know, object or consent, is this safe to try? Is it good enough for now? And all of that is done kind of remotely, asynchronously, through the occasional notification in Slack or email or Discord. And it just kind of takes the burden off of, A, I have something that I think should be different, but I don't know where to put it, or I don't know if I'm allowed to put it anywhere. And B, I really don't want to waste time in a meeting or a Slack channel just arguing and debating incessantly forever, because it's so easy to get lost in the details. And so instead, it's like, can we just optimize for progress? Can we optimize for what's next, what's worth trying, whether that be iterating on an agreement you already have, or whether that be adding something new to the mix, or even taking something away. Can we optimize for what's next, for the adjacent possible, instead of trying to make perfect policies and perfect agreements? Because of course, if you're successful, if you shapeshift or change or grow or your market shifts, that stuff's going to be wrong anyway. So it's like a waste of time to labor too long on it. I know how powerful for companies who have implemented your work, safe to try, becomes <laughs> this magical mantra that, well, is it safe to try? Is it safe to try? And not aiming for consensus, but instead just getting the okay, even if it's from the collective. Yep, this is safe to try. And that's such a game changer. I know it is for even really large companies who are using that. Totally. Yeah. And we've built that into the product so that when you do make an objection, it goes, hey, wait a second. <laughs> Um, just want to ask you a couple <laughs> things before you go forward with this and so actually good. pulses, what kind of harm are you sensing and how immediate will it be and how irreversible will it be? And just challenges your thinking a little bit like, do I really need to object right now? What was your logic when you were thinking, what is this meant to be murmur? Is it meant to be a book, 
a workshop, a consulting framework, licensing or software? Like, how did you decide to dive into the realm of software and Mm. know that this process that you're describing of working agreements would require the effort and investment of building actual software to support it versus kind of sending people off to do it on their own? So much investment and so much effort. So there's two very simple answers to this question, actually. The first was scale. So we, on the ready side of the house, we do this work with teams all around the world, and we often get brought into very large systems with 50 or 100 or 200,000 employees. And what we just know from that experience over the course of the last seven years that we're going to be able to reach 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 people. We're not going to be able to reach 80,000. We just can't do it. There aren't enough people in the world who know how to do this work for that to happen for all of the Fortune 500. So there's an inherent leverage problem that needs to be solved. And I've always believed that software could play a role in that. And that brings me to the second reason, which is my favorite one, which is when there are opinions baked in software, people tend to question them less than when there are opinions happening live in the room. So if I tell you, I think that you might have a little bit of a better time making this decision in this collective way, you'll be like, well, wait a second, who else has done this? And how have they done it? And where have they done it? And I'm not so sure. And you get into this debate, because your job is basically to interrogate ideas, right? That's what leaders do is they look around corners for risks, at least in the status quo. That's really frustrating. But when it comes to software, I don't see a lot of people running around being like, PowerPoint, bullets, should we though? (laughs) It's just like, it has bullets, I'm going to give it bullets. And so there's a little bit of If a door has a handle, I'm going to open it in software that I love. And my thought was, if we could build a product with opinions that are very people positive and very complexity conscious and very oriented around progress and around inclusion, then people won't question them as much. If they make the commitment to the tool, they'll just kind of do it. And so that's the hope anyway. That's the dream. And that was the reason that we decided to play with code this time. So interesting. And it's true. If someone cares enough about a philosophy, like you said, to invest the time, energy, effort into software, they're like, they must have something figured out. (laughs) Right, right. This is how this is supposed to work. Right, right. And it is such an interesting example. As you were describing it, I'm like, wow, this is the power of software because we are augmenting our minds by including, let's say, Including Murmur is our AI mediator, if you will, but they're not in the room and they're not there to be questioned and not in a bad way. I've seen the software. It looks brilliant. It's just in a way, like you said, that there's not a person there. Some people are natural questioners and Mm -hmm. skeptics, you Mm -hmm. know, so you're right that it takes out that element of total snap judgment when you're in the room and that friction, just the constant friction of debating the process like murmur is this is our take this is what we've seen work over and over and over again yeah you can't win this game that way that's not how you win this game and that's what's funny about it is like you can spend an hour in slack arguing you can spend an hour in a meeting arguing i have not seen someone spend more than 15 minutes end to end in a decision or an agreement in murmur you just can't Mm. do it what are you going to do you're there by yourself you're looking at it do you have questions or not you know if you don't then you're done with that round you go back to work And then the next round, it's like, do you have suggestions to make it better? Specific suggestions, not just things you want to crap on, but (laughs) what should be different? Oh, you don't? Then back to work. It just keeps doing that. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And it also really speaks to the power of 
language and naming things. So when you name, is this safe to try? It changes the decision somebody has to make from, is this the most perfect agreement ever of all time <laughs> for the forever eternity of our company? Or is it right. safe enough to try? Right. And that's a real shift. And I just know from my research for the book that so many of the best ideas we've ever had don't pass the sniff test if the goal is, is this a good idea? Speaking of Amazon, right? You work at a digital bookstore and someone's like, should we build infrastructure for the entire internet? Should That's a bad Alexa idea, and Bill. Listen into people's homes. Right? That's <laughs> yeah. a bad idea. But like, it's going to happen because if you just let it get a toehold, you can see what the value is. And I'm not saying one of those things are good or bad for society, but they're certainly good for Amazon's bottom line. And I think the idea is true in our businesses as well. Like, what is going to work may surprise you. And the hubris of leadership is to believe somehow that you know what a good and a bad idea is. You have an opinion. You might be right more than everyone else, but you just don't know. And so the only question that really matters is, what will it cost us to find out? And if the cost is too great to bear, then of course you should say no. And you should figure out a way to make the cost less. But just saying no to everything is not a great strategy, as the uh, taxi commission can tell you. So then with all your business experience, you know, the hubris to say it's a good idea. Let's say with Murmur, was there this moment where you were 50-50? Like, how did you know? Because it's one thing to be safe to try, but the level of investment that software-based companies take, it's high. It's high. Totally. It's much more complex. So do you yourself feel like, ah, oh, yes, this is my next big idea? Or did you have some increment of Murmur that was safe to try? Well, there's <laughs> three answers to this. Number one, I thought about this for eight years. So it was not like an over the course of a month, we should do this kind of a thing. Like I have been biding my time on this sucker for a long time. Number two, safe to try for us with the ready with my previous firms was self-funded, self-managed, like we never borrowed a dollar from anyone ever. And so we have the freedom to do what we want. But the bet was safer because we always had the money to make the next step. With Murmur, I knew it was going to cost untold amounts of money to build something that really matched the vision in my head. And so we did go to the venture community to get some principally aligned venture funding for this precisely to make it safe to try because they're in the business of one in 10 of these has to work really big and the other nine won't. And we don't know which one murmur is we think it's going to be a 100 Xer, but you'd never know until you have contact with reality. That's the second piece of it. And the third piece of it is you know, ask me again in an hour, because some days I wake up and I'm just like, this is going to be like huge. Like people are going to use this with their families and with their therapists and with their communities. We could use this between Ukraine. Like there were like all these thoughts about that kind of grandeur. And then there are other mornings where I wake up where it's just like, I don't even know if people want to do the right thing. I don't even know if people are going to ever take the energy to make that proposal to take that risk. Mm -hmm. And so you can be down on it. But I, yeah, you know, it changes like the weather. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for putting words to that and your honesty because <laughs> I thought I was the only one where I'm know. like, free time is going to free 50 million hours across the world and it's <laughs> going to soar everywhere. Everyone will be delighted. And then other days I'm like, oh boy, oh, it will sell a couple hundred <laughs> copies if I'm lucky, you know? <laughs> you know what's funny about that is I went into Brave New Work with the same attitude where I was like, all right, this is my second book. I know what I'm doing. If this is not a New York Times bestseller, then I'm a failure. And what ended up happening was the book sold well. It didn't sell that well. It didn't sell millions of copies. I think it sold 50, 60,000 copies, which is a solid base hit. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm That's only 1% of, that. of all books. But look, That's yeah. good. But I'm not Simon Sinek. You know what I mean? 
Or now James Clear, right? (laughs) James Clear, yeah, totally. It's not Atomic Habits. And for about a month or two, I was like, am I okay with that? Like, how does that feel in my body? And then I started getting emails from people that had made real change. Like I got an email from a cleaning service in rural India that was like freeing up these women to make their own schedules and make their own decisions about how they did their work. And I had nothing to do with that. Like I didn't consult. I didn't advise. It was just happening out there. And what landed for me was like, I actually care more about that than I do about the other side of it. And at least when I'm on a good day, right? Absolutely. When I got my ego in check. And it was like, yeah, there's something like deeper about that that I really appreciate. And so what I love about podcasts and books and getting your message out is it only takes one. Like if the right person picks it up or listens and changes something, that's the pebble in the pond. And I don't think it matters whether everybody else is excited or not. Absolutely. And then I feel like books are just the best little ambassadors. They're so hardworking and so are podcasts. They hustle. Who could know? I read your book years ago and it is so powerful. And the consulting I do with Pivot with companies, it's not consulting, it's more licensing, but they are already using principles like safe to try and Mm -hmm. adjacent possible. And it's so cool to come in and layer because Pivot is about navigating what's next, which involves piloting and small experiments. And so it's amazing that you, Aaron, can transcend time and space because I've interacted with your work layered in. You know, just that this, is cool. Yeah, very intricate. Well, yeah, and it's not even me, Aaron, right? It's just these right. ideas. Yes. You know, there's 400 books on the shelf to my right right now. And yes. a lot of those ideas are borrowed as well. So I think it's just like the network of thinking and what we share is a set of principles and things that we value. Yeah, Like that's the community that I want to be a part of. And that's why I think to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, that's why some of these new forms of organizing, whether they be DAOs or cooperatives or self-managing orgs, that's why they're so exciting to me is they make a lot more space for that kind of networking. And it's really cool to see DAOs connected with blockchain getting all this press now because I feel it's, (laughs) you know, we have third wave feminism, let's say. Well, it's like we have third wave self-organizing that's happening because we have this like sexy intersection of DAOs, crypto, NFTs. and (laughs) Whenever I see like a Gen 2, you know, self-management person hating on that and kind of being like kids get off my lawn, I'm like, shush, 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 shush. The cool high school kids are talking. (laughs) Like, let them talk. So that these ideas can spread to new places. Mm, I know. Yeah. I have friends that say like, oh, I just can't understand all that. And I go, yes, you actually could. (laughs) You can. You have to first just want to. It's entirely possible. I'm not going to convince anybody to try to understand it. But when people have this snap reaction like, oh, I don't want anything to do with it. It's all just a joke, figment, gambling, and NFTs are bullshit. And I'll say, do you know that the entire capital A art world is also just totally based on right figments of reputation yeah. and derivatives and, on wall street are exactly. bullshit like come on <laughs> exactly so i'm like do you know how much of our culture and exchange of goods and value luxury i used to think the louis vuitton luggage logo was the ugliest thing i had ever <laughs> seen when i didn't know better and i didn't know it was supposed to be this luxury brand i'm like who carries these brown bags with this stupid logo repeated mm-hmm. on it and now, you know, as an adult, it's like, oh, well, those are the coveted luggage. Mm-hmm. You know? Anyway, anyway, I'm on a real <laughs> tangent now, but I just think it's so funny that 
if you're going to yeah. criticize NFTs and crypto and DAOs without understanding anything about it, you got to also look at where else in our world we participate in these shared hallucinations as part totally. of the human game. Oh, my God. Yeah, we love it. We love a hallucination. That's why yeah. we use language and money. <laughs> right. Language totally. isn't real either, and neither is money, right? So it's all abstraction. Totally. Which abstraction would yes. you like? Right, right. <laughs> Aaron, this has been so fun. I always end with this question. If you could give fellow business owners permission to do something differently or drop something altogether, what would it be? I think just stop trying to have all the answers. Start asking. Ask more. Listen more. Talk less. Amazing. So good. Where can people find you if they want to keep in touch? So let's start with Murmur.com if you want to play with what we're building. TheReady.com if you want to get some help or give some help. And then I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dignan, and I'm on there every day. So if you hit me up or DM me, I'll definitely write back. Amazing. And are you currently building a DAO on blockchain? We may or part be of... up to something on the ready yeah. side <laughs> that looks like the future of private equity and collective ownership, but I can't cool. say more than that. Ooh, very exciting. And I have to ask you this as well. Are you also working on the next book or not yet? <laughs> it's so funny you say that. I just got a request from my publisher that was like, would you maybe if... <laughs> and I said, you know, I have to stay married, so it might have to wait a little while. <laughs> right. I think it's funny when they're like, could you write Brave New Work 2.0? You know, like, <laughs> we need what you already wrote, but we need that again now. Just put so a new cover on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one would even notice. Right, right. <laughs> you just call it DAOs with Aaron Dignan, and like the same exact content in the middle is so relevant. <laughs> I might actually do that. I might have someone yeah. just do like a light spit shine, just replacing certain words. Totally. And then we'll put it back out and see if anyone notices. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that will go viral. Totally. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you to Sarah Devereaux, who finally connected us. And just can't wait to keep following what you're building. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've listened this far, you get a gold star. Thank you. Word of mouth is the most joyful way we can grow this show. And it helps us land interviews with the luminaries and insightful guests that you would most love to hear from. Please send this episode to a friend who might find it helpful. And for show notes and related links from this episode, visit itsfreetime.com. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the Time Well Spent newsletter. You'll get instant access to my tech toolkit, a continually updated list of all the software I use, along with the total monthly spend to run my business, where no one works full-time, even me. Visit itsfreetime.com slash join. Remember, you are running the show. It's time for radical reimagining and everything is up for grabs. Let it be easy. Let it be fun and build with love.